Hello, Feisties. I'm Sarah Gross, CEO and founder of Feisty Media. And I'm here to tell you that our foundational strength training course, Strong, is on sale now through April 10th. If you're like me, you probably get a lot of crap in your Instagram or Facebook feed telling you how you should look or how you will feel if you look a certain way. As summer approaches, this only gets worse. We are told we should have a quote unquote summer body as if our bodies somehow morph into something completely different just because the weather changes. And frankly, over here at Feisty Media, we are totally sick of it. Because at Feisty, our vision is to build an empowering culture for active women. We want to shift our attention away from what our bodies look like and focus instead on what our bodies can do especially during the summer months when having the physical strength to do the activities we love is so important. The Strong Course is designed to take any woman, regardless of your starting point, through everything you need to know to level up your strength training journey. It includes a 16-week program to help you progress from wherever you are to lifting heavy or heavy-ish with dumbbells or a barbell. It also includes modules on the physiology of strength training for women, nutrition, how we keep ourselves injury free and more. I want every woman to be able to do the things that bring her joy and be strong enough to do them for life. Enrollment in this course is now open and you can sign up and learn more at womensperformance.com forward slash strong or check the show notes of this episode for the link. And for those of you who are among the 800 women who have already taken the Strong Course with one of our previous cohorts, congratulations on taking the plunge. And to the rest of you, see you in the course in April. Make this summer your strongest and best ever. Head over to womensperformance.com forward slash strong today. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Business of Fitness podcast with me, Molly Herford, on the Feisty Media Network. So I'm super excited this week. Not only do I have an awesome guest, I have some very exciting news of my own, and I'll go into detail in it in a later episode. But for now, suffice to say, I'm very excited. I just launched my first actual company. Uh, It's called Strong Girl Publishing, and the goal is basically just to create content for young girls, so middle-aged, young adult readers, that is written by young women athletes. And it's all about getting girls into sport, into outdoor activity, basically just kind of showing girls like my younger self that movement is fun. So I'm super excited about it. I'm going to be talking a lot more about it in coming weeks, but you can find out more over at stronggirlpublishing.com. And I mean, honestly... I have to just say a huge thank you to everyone who's listened to the show, who's submitted questions, who's come on as guests, because I feel like, uh, you know, a few months ago before I started this podcast, I don't think I would have had the ability to start Strong Girl Publishing the way that I have, because I just didn't really have the tools or the ways of thinking about actual business. Um, You know, I've been a freelancer for my entire life, and I've done quite well in that field. But to actually be thinking about, okay, you know, business numbers and uh, product-based stuff and all of that kind of, you know, 
ad dollars and working with authors, not just for myself. Uh, it's all just been this really steep learning curve. And just thank you so much to everyone who's had questions and had ideas and stuff. I think that's that's really helped set me up for uh, all of the things that I'm learning about. And I will definitely be doing an episode where it's just me talking about the things that I have come to terms with and had to learn as I've been going down this road. But today's episode... So excited. It's really cool to get to talk to Meredith Cass. Uh, she is the founder of Nix Biosensors. So it's a sweat sensing patch, uh, which is cool enough on its own. We can talk about the, t- we do get into all of the techie stuff, but what's really fascinating about talking to Meredith is talking about the fit tech space in general. So fitness technology. So that's all of the wearables, all of the testing, all of that fun stuff that's coming out now. Uh, but also raising venture capital and being a woman entrepreneur, especially in the fitness space. Uh, She has so much good advice, so much great intel, uh, so many good stories. Uh, I just thought this was so interesting for anyone who wants to take their business to the next level, who has been thinking about, oh, I want to do this thing, but I'm going to need X amount of dollars. Uh, You know, we we got really honest with this conversation, and I think there's just so much to learn from it. So without further ado, I will let (laughs) Meredith speak for herself. Enjoy this conversation with Meredith Cass. All right, Meredith, welcome to the Business of Fitness podcast. I'm so excited to to chat with you about everything that you're up to and learn more about Nix. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, okay, we have to start with just like this incredible Palmaire you have here of being named to Inc's 2023 Female Founder 200 list. Um, I mean, how does that feel like waking up and getting an email about that? Is it just like, ah, I made it angels singing or is it like stressful or where do you land? <laughs> Honestly, honestly, just incredibly surreal. Um, just, you know, having been a consumer of that list and seeing the incredible women on that list for years and years, it's just, you know, uh, shockingly humbling to be honest, to be in the company of such incredible women doing such incredible things with their organizations. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I know as I scrolled down the list and obviously you're, you're among those and, you know, it stood out to me, but holy moly, is that like, it's just, so incredible that there's this many female founders that are just doing this many amazing things. And I, I'm so glad we're finally getting some of the credit that we deserve as women in, in these fields, but. Oh. Yeah. I mean, there was some incredible stuff on there that I actually felt really compelled to call out when I shared it more publicly about, I mean, women literally creating clothing from um, water bottles that were harvested from the ocean or thinking about like regular everyday consumer products for kids that teach them socio-emotional tools and, you know, just really educational components and supporting mental health of teenagers. Just like, I mean, those women are changing the world. I'm, you know, at this point in time, mostly just like selling gadgets to athletes. We do have loftier visions, but just to be included in their ranks is incredibly humbling. I was going to say, hold the phones here. I think what you're doing is wildly important, especially as someone who's very prone to dehydrating the crap out of herself during things. So, <laughs> you know, there is that. <laughs> Which, I mean, okay, let's let's just get into what the heck Nix is. How did it come into being? What is it? Give me the give me the whole rundown. Sure. Yeah. In its earliest um, sort of form as it was taking concept in my brain. I mean, so I played um, basketball in college, not well, um, division three, very small school outside of Philadelphia. 
Um, and then I turned to running in my thirties, um, just as something to keep fit and, you know, some other type A activity to focus myself on, um, and really loved it. But in those early days when I was first training for some of my longer distance events, um, you know, half marathons and my first um, handful of marathons, I was just getting my hydration wrong left and right. Um, you know, typically on the dehydration side of things, but also experienced some overhydration or, or hyponatremia as it's more technically called, um, and, you know, while it was certainly possible that I was the only one struggling with something like that, it just kind of got the, um, greed of juices flowing and being that I was working in the healthcare industry alongside that, um, you know, I did have sort of the good fortune of having scientists and, and medical professionals and others kind of at my disposal to, to start bouncing ideas off of. I love it. I love it. So did you initially think the patch is sort of the way to go or how did that evolve to what it is today? And also how do you, how do you describe it? Would you call it a patch? Cause it, it's a patch, but it's also like a device. Yeah. yeah, we do. It is a little confusing cause there's two pieces to it. So we do call the disposable piece a patch that sticks to your skin non-invasively. And then the electronic piece that attaches to that, we call the pod. And so the two of them together, you know, with the, um, the app that accompanies it, we sort of talk about the whole system as the hydration biosensor. Um, Very cool. Okay. How does it work? So, so kerfuffled by this. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I mean, your question also was like, you know, did we always know it was going to be a patch type form factor? I mean, candidly, it really started with, purely conceptually thinking about what's the problem that we're trying to solve uh, technologically and then also from a user's experience. And I'm just having worked with so many startups over the years, that's kind of what my background was. I'm just so philosophically ingrained that you should be really identifying all the nuances of the problem that you're trying to solve before you even try to put pen to paper on designing the solution for it, no matter what your business case is. So we really tried to live that um, when we were thinking about this. And so it went from everything from what are the right biomarkers of hydration that we should be thinking about? And then what is the right form factor for that product that's going to pick up on that specific biomarker? Um, And then how specifically is that going to work for the user Um, all the way from what its physical manifestation is down to what's it going to cost them? Right, right. So were there, what was like the initial iteration of the NYX? Like, was it a patch or or did it look like it did today? Cause today it's, it's pretty cool looking. Not even close. It looked so different. Um, in fact, you know, some of it was patch based, but um, as soon as we realized we were going to want some electronics in there, and that was really kind of the first realization is candidly, we originally hoped it would be a completely disposable, really inexpensive um sort of, uh, you know, maybe not even fully quantifiable kind of red, yellow, green light type zone. Um, so like out. a and mood it, ring for your hydration is what yeah, I'm hearing. Yeah, almost like a mood ring where it would just say you're good, you're not good, or, you know, you're in the trouble zone. We figured even that would be better than what athletes are doing today. And candidly, I still believe that. But as soon as we realized with the path that we set down, And the biomarker that we selected, as soon as we set down that path and we saw the richness of the data we were able to collect, it kind of changed everything because it kind of blew open this Pandora's box of the data that was available. And from there, we realized, no, we really do need to have this data, you know, not only captured and transmitted, 
um, sort of passively and in real time, but also enabling, you know, if you think beyond endurance sports, obviously, which is where we're focused today, there's so many other applications where it makes sense to have one individual monitoring another instead of somebody monitoring themselves. And so there just, there arises this sort of um, patch and pod combo that I was just describing, which is not really where we started. That's actually really interesting. And it's funny because you know, I've talked to other fit tech founders who've figured out their fitness version based on a healthcare sort of thing. Uh, you know, Kinetics, the uh, which is like power soles for sneakers for running, was based yeah. on soles for diabetic shoes from Orpix. Um, so it's actually like really fascinating that you're kind of going in the opposite direction where it was like, here's this technology that'd be really helpful for athletes, but oh my gosh, there's yeah. actually a really important healthcare application for this. Like I could see, you know, if you're thinking about yeah. home healthcare, home healthcare workers or, you know, caretakers of, you know, family members, like if you're taking care of, you know, your older parent or something like this is a great way to be able to tell then if they're actually like drinking enough during the day, like that's fascinating. Yeah. There's so many applications. <laughs> well, and it's funny, Molly, that you just pinpointed. So my mother is in that category now, who unfortunately is hospitalized once or twice a year from hydration or electrolyte imbalance related um, issues. And so it's been a, a use case that was very much on the forefront. But if I'm being totally honest, as a female founder, I also know the challenges that are going to be uh, you know, that we'll be up against with respect to capital intensity and how much capital we'll be able to raise and um, thinking about that sequencing of what our commercial roadmap looks like and in what order we try to tackle those um, segments was something that I think we tried to curate really carefully from day one as we thought about, you know, the traditional sort of proof points of what, you know, what are those value inflections where you'll be able to raise money that next round of funding and what milestone does that get you to? And the irony is, as soon as we launched, we have customers from that whole roadmap of endurance sports, team sports, military, labor segments. I mean, we've got people all across that range, as well as researchers from all kinds of organizations buying our sensors, even though we're only marketing right now to endurance athletes. That's so funny. And actually, as you mentioned, uh, the the labor force, it's interesting. So in my other life, I sometimes occasion I've like managed to get in this weird thing where Ontario has a really um, impressive arborist society. So Amazing. tree climbers, and I actually lecture a lot for them on like the health and fitness side of, you know, how you need to be in shape to, to manage a full day up and down trees. And hydration yep. is a huge thing that I talk about. So this is actually so applicable to them. It's hilarious yeah. like how widespread this could like this can actually be um yeah and okay so in endurance sport i don't know if you've seen all of the um the battleground in cycling right now that's happening with cgm usage so yes. this is super intriguing because i haven't seen anything about your sensor yet it like looks exactly like a cgm so i'll be so interested to see what the uci has to say about this because it's you know a very similar thing in terms of like it's a sensor that's going to tell you if you need to be drinking just like a cgm saying yes maybe you need to eat something yeah no we find that storyline really fascinating too and for obvious reasons we're following it really closely um we also have good friends at super sapiens um who's the specific device in in question that's that's kind of going through that battle but um, yeah, it's been really interesting. You know, every other sports organization in the world from Major League Baseball to the NFL and, and everyone in between. I mean, they all have rules around what sensors are permissible and which ones are not. Um, you know, 
I couldn't guess sort of why CGMs would not be tolerable, whereas others might. Um, but you know, yesterday in the Boston area, <laughs> yeah, it's it seems semi-arbitrary. <laughs> And, you know, maybe because it's, maybe because it is a medical device, I don't know, ours is not. So maybe that sort of uh, excludes us from that process. But all I know is the Boston Marathon was here in Boston yesterday. Um, Ellie Kipchoge, who, of course, one of the winningest marathoners um, of all time in the men's field, um, actually was wearing a Super Sapiens device while he was racing yesterday. So, you know, it's it's different league by league and sport by sport. We haven't seen anything yet from USA Track and Fields wanting to govern, you know, the use of sensors. So, you know, it's something we'll stay on top of. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the the great irony I found at that is like while the UCI is outlying CGMs, you know, um, Iron Man is literally saying these things are great. And above and beyond that, USADA. So the US like anti-doping administration is actually writing about how they're really useful for athletes. So it's actually this really comical like mismatch of like where the technology is versus just like where I think this is very cycling specific, just where the cycling culture and this culture of like, you know, we're we're still these old school, like we're gonna race in cycling caps and no helmets and like (laughs) the I actually so I was writing about this for bicycling and I didn't realize that the president of the UCI actually tried to ban power meters in cycling or supported a ban of power meters in cycling because he said it takes away from the race if you have that much information so this is a man that wanted to ban like the most casual of (laughs) stuff that we take completely for granted now so I think in the next few years you're going to see the shift where these sensors are just part of everyday athlete life like it just wouldn't even occur to you to you know, race without having your couple sensors on your arms. (laughs) I I agree completely. I agree completely, especially I think for those that are focused on safety even more so than performance, perhaps. I mean, as someone who finished her first Ironman and had to go to the medical tent and get two liters of IV fluids, I am very much in favor of these, of these sensors and these technologies. Uh, I mean, you know, just from that, like you say, safety perspective is just incredible. Okay. So from, from the idea period, like where you're like, huh, this is a problem. Even from like the day you realize this is a thing I might want to do to the day it hit the market. How long was that? (laughs) Years, uh, (laughs) years. I mean, I would say, I think a minimum of six years. Yeah, just wanted to highlight that for anyone that thinks that uh, especially like any product development in the like tech space comes easy, does not. <laughs> no, no. And I, I think there are a few factors, um, won't bore you with all the details of it, but I think, you know, the the exciting and also perhaps intimidating thing about biosensing in particular is that you're really kind of building three products all in one, which means your life cycle of building that product is going to be at least double to triple if you had just been building one. And that is specifically, you know, we've got a hardware component, we've got electronics, we've got a patch, we had to build and validate all of those. Um, We also have biomarker validation that we had to do and actual, you know, clinical studies, not from the perspective of the FDA's governance, but um, you know, that we had to, to test and validate our algorithms um, and the biomarkers that we were gathering. And then, of course, the third is an app. I mean, consider right. that some companies, the app is all they're building. Um, we had to build basically three companies in one um, and doing that, you know, hopefully in a really capital efficient way. Um, it's quite mm-hmm. a path. Yeah. So 
at what point did you go all in on this? Like, was it at the idea point you were like, okay, we're going to go full steam ahead on this. Or were you working other, like in other areas while you kind of worked on this? How did that come about? Yeah. I mean, a little tongue in cheek. I mean, it was like day negative one. Um, I was really, really lucky to be an entrepreneur in residence at Harvard um, when I sort of conceived of Nix and the benefit of that program being I was a hundred percent time focused on this concept Whereas most entrepreneurs, of course, have to squeeze it into their nights and weekends while they're holding another job, you know, unless they have a partner that's able to support them. So um, I was working as that entrepreneur in residence on this next concept for, I think, almost a full, it must have been 11 or 12 months before we even incorporated the company. So I was kind of all in on it um, and raising money for the concept before we even incorporated the company. Oh, Wow. And okay, what what brought you to that program? Like what what were you doing prior to Harvard Business School here? Um, so while well, I am an alum of the school, and then I when I graduated from Harvard Business School, I went into venture capital in the healthcare world, um, really early stage stuff. So I was able to help start, I think, six or seven companies um in that seat as an investor um prior to starting next. So that journey around venture capital and sort of what I call venture creation brought me back to Harvard Business School where I was that entrepreneur in residence. So I, I did have this incredible luxury of um, not only getting to start companies, but then, you know, having a salary from Harvard directly while I was trying to dream up next, which is a, a really nice cushy situation that most entrepreneurs don't get to enjoy. You say that so casually as though like, oh, I had it so easy. I imagine this is like a lot of 80 hour weeks and uh, sleepless nights and all of the fun things that go into being one of the, what is the stat? Like 5% of women in the venture capital space or like 2% depending on who you're asking. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a lot of hard work. It's, you know, if, if I think if most of us thought about it in those terms, we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. So it's this what do they call it? Irrational optimism that you're going to be the one that really breaks through and changes the game and, you know, that you're going to bend the odds. And so I suppose I have that irrational optimism, but it's paying off, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And okay, before I forget, where did the name Nix come about? What is what is that from? I love this question. So a Nix is a figure from Nordic or Germanic folklore. It's literally like a water nymph that will rise out of a river or a stream or a lake. Um, and it's a, a shape-shifting figure that will take the shape of a horse or a person or something like that. I love it. That's so nerdy. I'm so into it. <laughs> Well, we loved the imagery. We just thought it was really powerful imagery of sort of the the intelligence that might lie beneath a seemingly inert, you know, substance like water. And we sort of think of that as like an analogy for sweat and the data that we can derive from it. Oh my gosh, I love it. Okay. I'm sorry. Did you did you come up with that or did a marketing team come up with that? Like that's just so like spot on and lovely and I'm obsessed with it now. <laughs> Oh, thank you. No, I did come up with it. It was, um, you know, it's like in these early days, you have the luxury of spending like three days just Googling things to, you know, you're like Googling Latin words for water and you're Googling all sorts of things. I'm just, I personally believe that we needed an iconic brand that the name doesn't necessarily explain what the product is. And that's a, that's a sort of, Fine line. A lot of people would say, especially as a new company, your brand should absolutely say what your product is. But I've always been more impressed with brands like Apple and Nike 
um, and similar where the name really doesn't tell you what the product is or what the company does. It's, you know, gives you, especially as a hydration sensor, gives you a little more work to do to educate people. But um, yeah, that's kind of where it started. And so, you know, any good tech company with an X in the name is also a pretty good path forward. So that one stuck. This is true. Yeah. Yeah. Even if, even if the (laughs) word itself didn't have an X in it, you have to change it around. So it has an X in it. So you're, you're good to go. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're good to go. I, I love the idea of kind of digging into mythology and folklore for stuff like that. And I mean, honestly, if you look at Nike, like Nike is Greek mythology. So right there, you're, you know, you're, you're clearly on the right track in the athletic space. (laughs) I think Adidas as well. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, it, it makes sense. Um, yeah. okay. You know, we've mentioned the, uh, alluded to the female founder woman in venture capital. So what have some of the challenges been as a woman in this fit tech space? Oh gosh. I mean, you name it. I mean, certainly we know that female founders get less funding. Um, that's sort of the stat that's always, um, advertised. I forget if it's 2.7 or 2.9%, but obviously, a, a woefully, you know, inadequate percentage of total venture funding that goes to female founders. Um, What that data doesn't show, which I think only female founders can really appreciate is it literally means that female founders have to take three to five to who knows how many more meetings than our male peers to raise the same amount of capital. That's enough for me to just be out already. I'm like, I need to have triple the meetings. Uh, I'm out. I'm out. Exactly. And running your business at the same time. Right. So that's, you know, that's kind of where we are right now is we're out raising around. And meanwhile, we've recently launched, we've got literally data coming out of our ears in the best possible way from purchasing data to usage data to physiology data. And we're trying to analyze all of it and utilize it and educate our users about it. And here I am, you know, spending 75% of my time fundraising instead of, you know, digging into that really, really cool content. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think this is an important thing to highlight because I will say, you know, when I came into say cycling journalism 15 years ago, I was one of the only women, but for me, that was actually an advantage because it was at a yeah. time when a lot of people really like a lot of media outlets were realizing like, oh, we actually need women to write about this stuff. As it turns out, people people care about women cycling. Who would have thought? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, in a lot of ways, I actually felt like being a woman in a very male dominated uh, industry actually like opened a lot of doors for me, but I think it's important to highlight that it, like that's actually not really the case in the venture capital world. Like it's nope, it just sucks. Like it's just hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, unfortunately, I think you're right. And I, you know, there are definitely times where being a female founder or female entrepreneur is a benefit because we can get you know attention for certain things, or you know, we've been selected for panels that, you know, people didn't want to turn them into mantles and they had to make sure there was a woman involved. And so, you know, being a a female lead of a tech company, I think we, we do get opportunities because of it, but yeah, I would say funding is not one of those. Unfortunately, I was going to say attention, unfortunately does not equal dollars. And we see that play out in, you know, every different space for, for women, unfortunately. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. But you know, you've, you have been in this world, you have, you know, done some of this raising capital stuff. So what have you learned from taking what I imagine has been a million meetings, like from your, think about that first meeting where you're pitching it to now, 
give us some like advice for walking into those those boardrooms and and owning your your idea and your space. I think there are a million things. And again, I was really fortunate that I had venture capital experience before even going into it. So I'd kind of been on the other side of the table, but um, you know, I think just knowing your content cold has always been helpful. I always make sure it's more of a tactical tip, but I always make sure that people have seen my pitch deck before the conversation takes place because it gives me the opportunity to actually have a meaningful dialogue um, instead of just like presenting a deck like a robot. So I think that's a really important part. I think, you know, we're really lucky that our story resonates with people. A lot of investors are endurance athletes. Um, you know, there's a lot of little things that we can sort of use to our advantage from that perspective. So, you know, it's any advantage you can get, I think makes sense. Um, we, it also has kept us really lean. Um, we've kept the team small. We're extremely scrappy. Um, you know, just try to get creative as every female entrepreneur does. Mm-hmm. And I actually really like the, I, I may be just biased toward the small scrappy teams because I, I do feel like the early really fast growth is very hard to, to manage and, and to maintain. So I think there's something to be said for, I think women are smarter about starting small and scrappy and staying small and scrappy until like such a time as it makes sense not to be. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, okay. Now you're not just, you know, kind of a runner. You've run all of the, the major marathons around the world here, the, the world major marathons technically here. Uh, how, how do you fit that in with the, with all of the work that you're doing with all these meetings? Do you have meetings like literally on the run here? Um, how's this working? <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes, although, you know, for me, the answer is always really early in the morning before anybody else is up, before my phone is blowing up, before my inbox is getting flooded. Um, It's also the most peaceful time of day for me because of the absence of all of those distractions. So um, I'm really fortunate that my husband is also an early riser. So I'm usually up somewhere between four and five in the morning. I try to squeeze my workout in then. It can be a little harder in the winter when it's black and cold outside. Um, but squeezing it in then gives me a sort of peace of mind first thing in the morning kind of gets me on the right path, um, you know, before there are a million things that need my attention. Mm -hmm. I actually do deeply enjoy the idea of doing more meetings, like while on the run or on the bike. I was just talking to, um, I've said this on the podcast a couple of times, but I spoke to Leslie Patterson, who's the screenwriter for All Quiet on the Western Front, which won a bunch of Academy Awards. She's actually Mm -hmm. a... Uh, like three-time Xterra world champion triathlete, just absolutely amazing. I know, mind-blowing. And she was saying as she's doing a lot of these like meetings for projects she's working on now, she actually does like take guys out on the bike and like she'll maybe drop them on a hill or two if required to uh, to make a point. (laughs) This is the kind of meetings I can get on board with. (laughs) <laughs> that's brilliant. That's brilliant. You know, it has the it has the added benefit, especially if those meetings are internal, that it, it helps us set a culture around. Uh, we love hiring athletes, by the way, even if they're not endurance athletes, any sport, there's just like a, there's a competitive self-competitive drive that we feel like comes with um, athletes. And, you know, we are a virtual company. So having that sort of self-agency and that self-direction is incredibly important. So taking a meeting, you know, while you're out on a run or even a walk or whatever the case may be, I think helps us set that culture that, you know, keeping physically active and therefore, you know, supporting not just your physical health, but your mental health is really high priority for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, 
I'm kind of, I kind of want to go back to, you know, your time at Harvard Business School and in that kind of incubator incubator. And what are some of like the the best, I guess, takeaways for wannabe entrepreneurs that you you learned there? Like what are the skills that you acquired there that you think, you know, people really need to to understand in order to thrive in this very like do it yourself, you have to figure out your next steps, you're the one responsible for you kind of situation. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think it boils down to resourcefulness. And what I mean by that specifically is, I mean, there are endless programs and accelerators and, you know, founder groups and things like that, that can offer workshops and, you know, fireside chats and things like that. And I just, while those can be interesting and useful, my personal perspective has always been just have confidence in your vision and whatever problem you need to solve on a given day, find the resource to support that decision-making in the moment that you need to make the decision. In other words, don't bother taking a workshop on like patent um, filing and, you know, spend a few hours like learning that in advance, get to the point that you're ready to file a patent and then learn it then, or pick up the phone and call the person that can teach it to you in that moment. And I think it's hard because especially female founders and founders of color, it's really easy to feel like maybe we're at a disadvantage. We've got to arm ourselves with all of the information, all of the resources, when the best thing you can do is seek that input sort of just in time, if you will, like in that moment that the decision has to be made. And maybe I'm biased to think that way too, because that's also kind of the whole you know, value proposition of our product is like, you're getting that decision support information in the moment that a decision needs to be made that just screams efficiency to me, instead of trying to spend hours and hours figuring it out before you get to the point. No, I love that. I I would say like, the bias towards action is probably one of the most important things that, that people yes. can do. Because I think otherwise, we get so caught in like, I mean, oh my gosh, if I attended every mastermind or group event or yeah. workshop or class, or, you know, like every time I start kind of thinking like, oh, I want to work on this thing in my business. And like, I should, pro- I should probably do a baby MBA course. That's what I should, I'm going to go Google that now. Exactly. I'm gonna go- <laughs> and then you spend all that time with theoretical, I mean, not that there's not value there, right. But you Absolutely. could take a course and 30% of it's going to have value, but if you take the action, you're going to learn so much more. Um, yeah, no, completely with you. And certainly like not starting because you need to take XYZ course first. I think you could even do them overlapping. Like they can run parallel to each other, but I think the, I will start after I XYZ is definitely where people seem to get into the the most trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds definitely. like you have never had that problem. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say never, but I definitely am more, you know, biased toward action. I think that's a great way that you phrased it. Okay, here's the deal. You want to take control of your health, of your life, but honestly, who has the time to go into the doctor, get the requisition for all the blood work, and then go to the lab and actually have that blood drawn, then wait weeks for the doctor to get back to you with the results? No, absolutely not. Inside Tracker is the way to go. And bonus, you can do it from the comfort of your own home with their mobile blood draw. It is so easy. Oh my gosh, so convenient, so safe, so reliable. All you have to do is when you order your Inside Tracker panel, you actually just add the mobile blood draw option and then boom, suddenly you have a lab tech at your house at a time that works for you to take your blood. We did this last month and honestly, it was the easiest experience I have ever had with blood draws in my life. So convenient and then the turnaround on the results is so quick. 
and instantly you get this whole view of what is going on inside you with all of the important biomarkers that you need as an athlete, as an entrepreneur, as a go-getter. So definitely, definitely check them out. Save time in your day, add time to your life with Inside Tracker's mobile blood draw. And if you visit insidetracker.com backslash feisty, you get 20% off today. That's insidetracker.com backslash feisty to get 20% off today. Now, were you a very like entrepreneurial type as a kid? Were you like a lemonade stand or like babysitter kind of girl or <laughs> how did this come you about? Know, not technically. No, I never, I was never sort of, you know, entrepreneurial in that way. I will say my father very much encouraged me and my sisters, by the way, all of us having um, names that end in hard consonants, by the way, he was de- very determined to have strong willed, strong minded daughters Um, And we were always really encouraged to think creatively and to question authority and to question rules and, um, you know, really be a little bit punk rock in our thinking in general. So I think that is absolutely elemental in being entrepreneurial. But no, I never sort of started any cool businesses as a as a young teen or anything like that. (laughs) Now, you mentioned the the punk rock ethos and you did. Did you actually grow up in Boston or in and around Boston? Yeah, Cambridge. Okay, so you actually had the the really good punk rock scene sort of right at your your fingertips <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> Quite literally, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, back when you know pre social media, when it was like zines and uh, you know some like blogs and forums and stuff like that. Yep, exactly. I, I I love that, and I mean the independent kind of ethos really comes across even in in the Nick's biosensor itself, right? Um, and actually, to that end, there's a really good quote that was in, you know, in with that uh, Inc. 2023 list. And, you know, it says, I'm going to just read it here, uh, that you're a staunch believer that truly disruptive innovation in healthcare will be driven by highly personalized data in the hands of the consumer. I mean, you don't really get much more punk rock than that. Yeah, man, I totally agree with that. And, I, you know, having spent so much time in the healthcare system, that is a belief that um, would not necessarily be widely held. Um, you know, it is very controversial in the medical field to give the power to the patient, uh, never mind the consumer and sort of the hopefully the punk rockness that we were able to get across in that concept was like, there is no difference between the patient and the consumer. It's one and the same human. It's just, you know, at what point in time you're encountering them. So, you know, I think maybe also a little bit from the sort of female founder perspective, but the idea of like, in what direction can we have the greatest impact in solving all of these massive problems that we have in the healthcare system, systematic um you know, institutional uh, structures and biases that also prevent access from, you know, for certain groups. Um, yeah, I just, you know, it. there is a lot of punk rockness, I guess, in that of just sort of, let's flip this on its head. And I'm not going to go through the FDA or a, you know, an insurance company or a doctor to get data to a human on, you know, to just to be able to give them actionable resources to make day-to-day decisions about their health and wellness. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, I've I've had that same sort of thought with companies like Inside Tracker where you're getting your own blood work done. And to me, that's been a huge thing because as a like relatively healthy on the outside looking human, it's really yeah. hard, especially, you know, now that I'm up in Canada where we have socialized healthcare, it is almost impossible yeah. to get just like a regular blood panel done. 
So, you know, I've just paid to get it done so that I can sort of see like, okay, what actually is going on? And I've, you know, sent it to doctors that are then like, oh yeah, huh, this, this marker is off. Who <laughs> like, who knew? And I'm like, me, me, I was telling you, I asked you for that test. Exactly. <laughs> and who's got more incentive to keep you, you know, healthy and, and functioning at your peak than you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Ugh. Makes me, it makes me absolutely bananas, but I'm so glad that more and more of these technologies are coming online. So, you know, we can be making change for ourselves and that we have this information to then, you know, take it to an expert if it does, if stuff is really off and say like, hey, this, this needs to get fixed. Yeah, no, totally with you. I think the real key in that too, though, is what we hope Nix is representing with respect to you know, wearables have tried to do an incredible job of these, what I would call digital biomarkers using accelerometry and GPS and even, you know, heart rate or derivations of heart rate. Whereas we really hope Nix and some of these CGM technologies and others are creating this new category, which is sort of how I define biosensing, where it's really predicated on the the valid and, and um, sort of credible, true markers that are molecular and electrochemical. So you're sensing these things through, you just referenced inside tracker, you're sensing these things through different samples, be they blood or sweat or saliva or even breast milk. Like there's there's tons of health and wellness data in those non-invasive samples that we can sort of, I hate the word democratize, but I'm going to use it, that we can democratize that data for the general public to be able to access and understand their health and wellness without having to go to the doctor's office. So I think that distinction is really important because I think that's the direction everything is going, which is it's no longer just, you know, an electrical engineer created a, you know, an optical sensor that we're now going to assume as a proxy for some metric. Like, no, we're actually sensing things molecularly and electrochemically the way that they do in the healthcare system, but we're taking it outside of that system. Mm -hmm. Ooh, I love that. Um, and I mean, okay, kind of turning to the the wearable thing, this is this sort of spicy topic that I've been really interested in lately. And I'm actually working on an article for Canadian Cycling Magazine that's sort of about like the new wearable and sort of sensor revolution in, in endurance athletics. And I think there's a lot of like positives to it, but there's also, I think a pretty big fear on my part that we're complete, like that people have kind of gotten it in their head that they can kind of like farm out how they're feeling to a bunch of apps <laughs> or flip yeah. side, they like the new shiny thing, they get it and they do absolutely nothing with it. Like the putting it on is like, that's, that's all. Um, so, and I mean, or, you know, they put everything on, but then they're looking and there's like just so many inputs coming at them. You know, my one thing's telling me that I'm like really tired today, but the other thing's telling me like, no, you're good. Go for it. And the other thing is telling me I need to <laughs> like, oh, geez, it's so much. I and mean, they're all dinging and notifying me. And oh, dear Lord, I've almost thrown my phone exactly. out the window as I've been like playing with this stuff for the last like couple months. Um, so, I mean, yeah. You know, how how do we like come to terms with like finding what's right for us as far as like the sensors and the wearables and like what makes sense? Well, I am 100% with you. I think if we lose touch with how we're feeling and really taking stock of our bodies, which candidly is like the fundamental cornerstone of mindfulness in the first place, of which I'm a huge advocate, like if we're relying on external devices or technology to tell us how we're feeling, how we're feeling the majority of the time, um, I think that can be a really dangerous and slippery slope. 
By that same token, I think if we're relying on truly valid technologies for things where our own senses might be leading us astray, mm-hmm. then I see some benefit. And so, you know, I think it's a balance of how do we think about those things? How do we make sure we're still creating an experience for ourselves where we're not always distracted? You know, maybe you don't use the technology every time, or maybe you're incorporating it with other technology to make it truly actionable. That's sort of one of my pet peeves too, is, you know, we shouldn't be selling products to any consumers just because we were able to engineer it. We should be doing it because it's actually solving a problem for them. Mm-hmm. No, I love that. And I love, I like the idea of, you know, maybe it's not every time, like, you know, if you're going yeah. out for like a 5k run, you probably don't yeah. need, you know, to put on your, like your heart rate strap and your patches and your, you know, this, that, and the other right. thing you can probably just go out and right. do the 5k. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, 50k. Really, yeah, that might be different. Or, or if, you know, if there's a particular workout that has particular importance or where, you know, the potential consequences of getting something wrong, you know, for next, we think about, you know, if you're putting in a workout that's an hour or less to your point with a 5k or something like that, maybe your risk of dehydration is lower, or maybe the consequences of dehydration aren't as great that day. But if you're running your marathon or your ultra, or you're going out for your first even sprint triathlon, like maybe those are circumstances where you want to have that thing dialed in. So we use this framework of, of a workout um, or training with intent and whatever that intent is could be very subjective. It could be a certain time goal. It could be, you know, even just finishing, um, again, my sister-in-law ran the Boston marathon yesterday. She just wanted to finish. So, you know, whatever that goal happens to be for you, if you've got a real intention, maybe the data has value. And if you're just out there, just letting loose, maybe it doesn't. And I think that's kind of the beauty of technology is you can take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, okay. Before, before I like wind down here, I do want to hear what a day in the life looks like for you. I mean, I realize entrepreneur every day is different, but like you're, you're sort of average work day. What, what's it look like other than the 4am wake up, which I'm just going to cast a veil over that. Cause that just seems terrible. <laughs> well, you are absolutely right. It is super different every day. The consistent is usually up between four and five, try to get a workout in. Maybe that's a run on some days. Maybe it's just a walk depending on how my body feels. Um, I try really hard to do that without phone distraction, texts, anything like that. Um, you know, maybe there's a podcast or, or music involved, but that, that period of the morning is really about clearing my mind, figuring out what the important topics are for the day. And then from there, candidly, it's usually back-to-back meetings. Um, We do a team stand-up every day at 9 a.m. because we're a virtual company. It's kind of the one point where we know we're all together every day at 9 a.m. We're 11 people, so we can still do that when we get a lot bigger. That may be harder. But so 9 to 9.30 is kind of the the team meeting. So it's um, between like 6 a.m. when I finish my workout and 9 a.m., that's my crunch time. So that's my quiet time to actually do my work, respond to emails, review, you know, whatever deliverables, you know, might need to be reviewed before they go out because come nine o'clock, I'm pretty much back to back until about four. Um, And then I try really hard to shut off at four. Sometimes it's not quite at four. Uh, My meetings, I try to hold uh, pretty firm that those will end at four, then maybe, you know, four to five, I'm just kind of clearing my desk for the day. And that's really important to me because when you get up at four in the morning, you're going to bed at eight at night, typically, or between eight and nine. So um, it's really important to me to be able to unplug. I'm 
absolutely unapologetic about spending a couple hours in the evening with my husband and my stepdaughter. That's, you know, absolutely important around, uh, you know, my favorite class in business school was building a business in the context of a life, which was all about balance and figuring out how you don't get yourself overextended and burnt out. So that's pretty much it. It's, you know, from about 6am to 4pm is pretty much running straight through. And then it's, you know, kind of a binary I'm on or I'm off. Love that. I love that. And what, uh, what apps, tools, what are you using to, to sort of stay organized? Honestly, I just, I'm so inherently over-organized that I pretty much kind of just do it. <laughs> it kind of just comes naturally. You know, I'm probably one of those entrepreneurs that's never going to have anybody that's like an assistant or books my own travel or my meetings or anything like that. Um, I just, you know, I know the the little tips and tricks that are going to keep me organized, booking meetings for 45 minutes instead of an hour, because that way I'm sure that I'll get water and lunch and, you know, bio breaks throughout the day. So yeah, it's pretty au naturel from that perspective, all self-managed. I love that. Um, And actually that, that does remind me, I did want to ask about as far as like the pitch deck goes, because it seems like you've probably honed this, any tips for pitch deck, like presentation, you know, like when you're, when you're walking in, do you want to have it as like a PowerPoint? Do you want to have it as a PDF? Is there like a number of slides that you found to be like the magic uh, number? What's our tip? You know, I think the tips that have been most important to me and that I've tried to really hold close to is first of all, the actual flow without question. I'm adamant that when you give a pitch, it should start with the problem that you're trying to solve and then flow seamlessly into how you're solving that problem. And it should be detailed and nuanced enough that the, you know, call it three specific problems, the nuances that you called out should be directly answered by three product features um, or value propositions that directly solve those nuances. So I candidly think if you've nailed the problem solution set in a pitch, the rest is details. if you've gotten a, if you've gotten an investor on board for them to be like this is a no brainer after those first two sections, then by the time you get through the rest, which is you know market opportunity or traction, the team, um, you know future growth opportunities, all of that is kind of detail. Mm-hmm. Um, investors don't invest because you've nailed every little detail of your plan. They invest because you know your stuff and they trust that you're going to get the company there. The little gifts I'm inserting on Canva don't really matter as much as I think they do. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you bring up a good point. This is another. This is another thing that I usually, especially when I'm mentoring other entrepreneurs, um, I always tell them: do not underestimate the importance of your branding. If your deck looks sloppy, you look sloppy. Mm-hmm. So if you put together, you know, a deck that is immaculately organized, the branding is immaculate, and I mean like consistent font sizes, consistent color palette. You know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be something you spent a lot of time or money on, but as long as you're consistent and it looks buttoned up, the impression that you leave is infinitely different than if you didn't spend time on those things. Ooh, such a good point. Yes. Love that. Okay. Are there any questions? This is a really odd question to ask. Are there any questions that you hate to get asked as a female entrepreneur? Yes. I hate the question around whether we pursue or prioritize female investors. Mm. Um, And the reason I hate it is, um, I mean, we love having brilliant women around us. Obviously, it's not about that. But, (laughs) um, you know, it's just, it's sort of a double-edged sword. We do find sometimes female investors are under their own pressure 
to be earning their stripes within their organizations. And so it is a little bit different than maybe pitching some of their male peers. But it also, I mean, the real thing is it just sort of implies, I think, sometimes that, you know, we're not going to get funding from these other organizations or we're not worthy of funding from these other organizations unless they are female founder focused. And so that can be really tough. It's it's almost suggested, I think it's suggested with good intent, but the, the subtext is that these are, you know, tier B um, investors. Right. That only ladies are going to invest in other ladies. <laughs> ladies exactly. should only be seeking... Yeah, you're. It's funny. You're right because that wouldn't necessarily dawn on someone that that's like kind of an offensive thing to ask because you're like, yay, women, women investing. But then you're right as you think about it, you're like, okay, so I'm supposed to be cutting my pool of investors to the two percent exactly. that is women? Like that makes no sense. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Before we go. Um, we didn't actually get to explain how exactly the NYX patch works in terms of like, you know, are you wearing it for just your your activity? Does it come off? Are the patches replaceable? All that fun stuff. So I want you to share that before you share where everyone can find you and the patches. Or rather yeah, the absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, no, my pleasure. So we think about, as I was saying, the, the system in kind of, I guess, technically three components. We've got the patch that actually adheres to the skin. We've got the electronic component that clicks into it, which we call the pod. And then we've got the app, which kind of governs its use. So the use case is you're preparing for your workout. You grab the pod off the charger. You grab a patch, you know, let's say out of the pack. You physically pull those together. They click nicely when it's kind of in place. You peel the backing off just like a Band-Aid, stick it to the body. We like the bicep for an endurance athlete, although other parts of the body make sense for other types of users. Um, and then from there, you're starting and stopping that workout on the app. So it will ask you a couple specific questions. Are you cycling? Are you running? Are you indoors? Are you outdoors? Things like that. Um, because we are grabbing environmental data alongside your sweat profile for that workout. That's part of what we then get to leverage into a predictive model for you for some date in the future. But for that specific workout, you start the workout on the app. You just go ahead and get going. You start sweating. We're measuring your sweat every second, transferring data to the app. You can get notifications if you opt into that, um, either time-based or volume-based in terms of the volume of fluid that you've lost. And when that workout's over, um, you stop the workout on your app. You just peel it off, decouple the pod in the patch, um, throw the patch away, and then recharge the pod. And that's it. And then all your data is there in the app for the next workout. Perfect. All right. Where can people get their hands on this? Where they can, where can they follow you, follow Nick's, all that stuff? Yeah. So our website, nixbiosensors.com has pretty much everything you can look for from product information to more detail on the consequences of dehydration and the magnitude of impact it might have on your workout. Um, obviously, we sell the product directly through there in both what we call a starter pack that includes the electronics and a refill pack that just has the patches once you've gone through that initial pack. Um, and, uh, it has all the links to our social media as well. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Meredith. This was super cool. I'm very excited to, to try out one of these biosensors myself, see how much I'm sweating and how much I'm not drinking enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> Looking forward to that. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Hopefully that episode really opened your eyes to some of the ins and outs of the venture capital space and the fit tech space. 
Uh, and I mean, hopefully, since I know a lot of you listening are coaches or, you know, doing your own consulting with directly with clients, hopefully this makes you think, as some of our other episodes have, about the different ways you can be con- connecting with clients, the different inputs that you can be getting from them uh, in order to help them find new insights, get to next levels of performance, all that kind of stuff. You know, we have all of this really great access to testing and all of these different metrics right now, more so than we ever have before. And I think the coaches that figure out how to utilize this data, how to harness this data, how to collect this data for their clients and really give clients advice based on this data, I think if you can be at the forefront of doing that, I think you're going to have such great results with clients. I mean, not only will you just have great results because you're actually providing, you know, a lot more personalized content, but I think you're also just kind of going to be able to stay ahead of the fact that a lot of this stuff is shaping the way that we're going to see coaching and fitness go. These personalized models are just making it so much easier to have, you know, almost lab quality, if not actually lab quality uh, information available kind of at our fingertips. So definitely if you're a coach or you're just someone in the fitness world, don't sleep on technologies like this. Again, not every technology is going to be right for everyone. As we talked about with the wearables, you know, there is definitely information overload is definitely a thing. Let's just put it that way. But if you can figure out how to work really well with a few of these technologies, I think it's going to put you in such a great position as a coach. So highly recommend at least just keeping up with what's available. All right. Would love to hear from you what your, you know, topics, questions, concerns, uh, what are you thinking about in terms of the business of fitness these days? I would love to hear from you over on Instagram. Uh, at business.of.fitness, and I'm at Molly J. Herford, and I will see you next week.